Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. Now, King Herod heard of it. Now, he heard, let me pause just for a second. I won't do this throughout the rest of this passage. Um, what just happened was uh, the disciples, Jesus sent the disciples two by two, and they began to proclaim the message of uh, repentance, of salvation, uh, showing compassion, casting out demons, and, and really just kind of trust, learning to trust in God and to be dependent on him. Massive movement of what is happening. Big revival taking place. Here's where King Herod, he's heard of it. And, and for Jesus' name had become quite known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said, well, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her. We'll unpack that in a second. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, which is a horrid name for a woman, no offense if that's your name, had a grudge against him and wanted to be put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrow, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. Welcome to church, right? When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Your word is the authority on which we stand on. Your word is powerful. We pray that your word would bring light into our lives, that it would be mighty to save. And we thank you, God, that you have just spoken to us. And we thank you for what you are going to do and be mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen. Herod, interesting, interesting story. Aren't you glad you picked today to come? 
Herod was trapped because of many things. He was trapped because of his lusts. He was trapped because of his pride. Um, in fact, he was a fox, as Jesus describes him, I believe, in Matthew's gospel, meaning that this guy was a character. This guy was kind of cunning and, and really sharp and, and very witted in his responses to people. This is a very horrible Horrible story. In fact, this story would have spread like wildfire in Galilee and through Jerusalem. This story is, makes it on the raunchy magazines. In fact, if Netflix was a thing at the time, Netflix would be developing a series specifically on this particularly odd yet disgusting story. This is a story of how Herod could not give in to the truth of the message of John the Baptist, but instead would follow his own desires, leading him to kill someone. But make no mistake, this is also a story about something else that's happening. This is a story of what I would call the fate of, or the high cost of, civic engagement. Civic engagement is a process which people take collective action to address public concerns. Civic engagement includes communities and people working together to protect the common good of the community. Its goal is to address issues that are taking place in the community, and the area at large. This is a case of not only the wickedness and the depravity on full display of a wicked king, and let's just be straight, his incredibly wicked wife, but this is also a story about the high cost of when you engage as a believer in your community. Last time we heard from John the Baptist, um, John was put in prison. We've been studying through Mark's gospel. And if you'll remember, months back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Mark was put into prison. Once John is in prison, Jesus goes to Galilee and begins to spread the, the gospel of God. And now we are told the ending of John the Baptist and what happened to John the Baptist. Now, if you remember last week, I told you that there are these things that scholars call in the Gospel of Mark, Markin sandwiches. I know my stomach is growling, and so maybe yours is too right now. So you have where Mark would take one story, talk about it, and then suddenly, without any kind of like um, good transition, just immediately go to another story. And when that story's wrapped up, he would go back to the story he was talking about. Now, remember what, what Mark was talking about. He was talking about Jesus and how he was about to get his message out as effectively and efficiently as he can. And the means and the methods of Jesus getting his message out was him sending out his disciples. They had just been in the study with Jesus for just a short, short period of time. But Jesus gives them the authority to take, remember, take the gospel of salvation, take the message of repentance, take the message of and to show compassion. And they were to also go out 
and learn the art of being fully dependent on God. And the disciples, they spread this news, and now Herod finds out, and he's deeply disturbed. I love how the text described how Herod was deeply disturbed. There was another Herod, if you remember, in other Gospels, in Matthew and Luke. That was in the beginning of the Gospels. There was a guy named also King Herod. That was the father of this Herod. Father Herod, in, in, in the early parts of the gospel, was also disturbed. He was disturbed that he heard the news that there was a king that was just born. And so he was deeply disturbed by this. Why was he disturbed by this? In, in, in King Herod's eyes, he was the rightful ruler. He was the king. He was the one who had all authority. And now someone is going to come up and kind of threaten his authority. So what, what Herod, he, he's also disturbed at this message. Um, Father Herod is so disturbed that he issues an edict that every firstborn son to and under should be murdered. Because of the disturbance of one man, the innocent lives suffered. And Herod the son going to put his feet right into the shoes of his father because he's also disturbed. This time he's not going to be after the young two-year-old and under, but he's going to be after the head of the messenger and the preacher of John the Baptist. There's these, if you look at the first few verses that we read, and we take it back, there are multiple theories of Jesus. Wasn't that interesting? So Herod hears about Jesus and everyone has their personal theory or their personal opinion about who Jesus is. That's kind of the same story that we find ourselves in today. Isn't it always interesting if you look deep enough into the scripture, into the sacred text, it's like nothing's really changed. Same issues. I mean, we're not reading off of scrolls. I'm scrolling with my finger on this technologically advanced iPad. And so those are probably the only things that have changed. But it's all so interesting that as you read the Bible, you see things that are happening then. And it's like, wow, this is happening today. Many theories of who Jesus is. Nothing new. Today, is he the brother of Satan? Was he just a prophet was he just a really good man? Even, even secularist, ancient writers would agree, hey, there, there was a guy making a disturbance in Jerusalem, and eyewitnesses claimed that he rose from the dead. So you have to reconcile at some point that, yes, there was a Jesus, but here's what you've got to also reconcile. Which Jesus are you going to believe in? Well, this, this Jesus is just Elijah. It's just Elijah reincarnated because that makes a lot of sense. It's just one of those old prophets that just scream at the people of Israel all the time. That's who this Jesus is. Oh, and then, and then King Herod wouldn't listen to his conscience, but he tried to make sense of everything. No, this is the, I know who this is. This is John the Baptist resurrected, coming after me. 
And so, so like the people in Mark chapter 6, you, you yourself have to reconcile which Jesus are you going to believe in. Are you going to believe in the things that many people say he is? Or are you going to believe in who Jesus says he is? That when he appeared to John the Revelator in, John, in Revelation, he says, Behold, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. When he tells the Pharisees of who he is, if you're, you want to see the Father, you're, you're looking at him, you see me, you see the Father. And the Pharisees want to pick up stones to throw and cast at him because that's blasphemous. It's a claim of deity. So you have to reconcile, even for yourself, in here this morning, wrestling with this idea, who is Jesus? You believe in the words of Jesus, or you believe that he's just some good person? Now, in, after this, we, we find like this kind of weird transition in, 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 in Mark's gospel, right? This is a part of that weird sandwich that, that scholars talk about. Um. John the Baptist is, is dead, and Mark wants to kind of backdate and tell us how John the Baptist died. Well, it was John the Baptist's message. It was his preaching that got him killed. It wasn't his personality. It was the message of John the Baptist. Don't miss that. Yes, John the B was, John the Baptist was an odd guy. John the Baptist was very popular. John the Baptist wore some strange things. He ate some strange things. But there's something about John the Baptist that when he spoke, he had this authority in him that he can look at the king and his wife, Herodias, and call them out on their sin. How could John the Baptist do this? He had an authority. You know why? Because John the Baptist knew who he wasn't. That's how he could speak with such boldness and such authority. John the Baptist knew he can speak into cultural issues and do it with such authority because he knew who he wasn't. I, I'm just a voice. I'm just a finger pointing. I'm just a light shining. I am just the best man. And in John's Gospel, chapter 1, we find John the Baptist proclaiming the message of Jesus. And he sees Jesus out in the distance and he says, hey, that's, that's the guy. That's the lamb who's here to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist knew who he wasn't. I am not the light. I'm just shining the light. I am not the ultimate voice. I'm just being, I'm just a finger pointing to I'm just a voice in the wilderness. Now, this interesting dynamic of Herod and his choice for Herodias in 18, it says that when John is encountering um, Herod, he says, it's not lawful to have your brother's wife. Now, Herodias had a grudge on John the Baptist. Why? Because somebody had the guts to call them out on their sin. Now, I think that we should just be really good Christian people. And we should just be quiet on issues. We shouldn't, we, we shouldn't do this, preacher. We shouldn't call those in authority out on their 
issues and their sins. That's not our role. Oh, well, I, okay, it, that's maybe what you think. But John the Baptist had this authority inside of him, and he knew that the supposed king, and, and by the way, he wasn't a real king, he was just a puppet king for Rome. And this supposed king, this guy who thought he was king over Israel, was like, okay, his brother's wife, I don't understand the dynamic, dynamics of, of how this transpired. Herod marries his sister-in-law, and so his niece then becomes his stepdaughter. And if this were a right way of thinking of culture, she was just adopted into Herod's dynasty. And so she's now viewed as a daughter of Herod. Now, can we just pause for a second and just realize the type of depravity? You know, I was like the... The, the nastiness. You, you guys remember, some of you aren't old enough to remember Jerry Seinfeld. Not Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Springer. That's that guy, Jerry Springer. Man, I used to love watching that as a kid. That, it kind of, sh- I guess it displays like the depravity of my own heart and the wickedness of my own heart. Like just seeing people brawl it out over, well, he's not the father. And just bam, 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 just go crazy. Like I was like, yes, this is real entertainment. This is what this is. This is like Jerry Springer on steroids. This makes Jerry Springer look like G-rated. Sadly, Herod finds himself in a pickle. You read the text. Herod feared John. He, He had an idea. He understood who John the Baptist was. In fact, it's so funny because he says that he's perplexed by his message, but he's also listening to him gladly. Like, it's like, I know you're, I know you're like attacking me, dude, but I really like what you're saying. Isn't that odd? I mean, we're pitting, we're kind of putting like Herod up like wicked. Yes, he is wicked, but it's like almost like the spirit of God is like drawing him. Or, but Herod just could not come to that conclusion. Because Herodias, his wife, she's being a little vindictive. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs, better to be on a roof, a stormy roof, than in a house with a scornful wife. This is case in point of that. I believe that the scorn of Herodias was intruding herself into the mind of Herod where she began to nag and poke. I've got to get rid of this guy, but I can't because my dumb husband likes him. So I'm quite sure this is why Herod puts him in prison just to shut his wife up. All right, listen, I can't kill him, but you know, I'll just put him in prison just so you'll get off my back. Husbands don't even agree amen on that type of statement or whatever. And then we get into this party. And this is a birthday party that no one would ever forget. He had all the leading men, all the military leaders, all the, the who's who of Galilee. Like this is watching those celebrity events that like nobody watches. 
And then like all the celebrities, they get up there with a microphone and talk about how oppressed they are. Meanwhile, they're flying in private jets and they got these large mansions and billions of dollars in their bank accounts and they are oppressed. These are the same people who are at Herod's birthday party. The kind of folk that just kind of leave a bad taste in your mouth. Military leaders. Just all types of wicked people that Herod is in collusion with. Now, what do you do then? All right, so we're at a birthday party. Let's kind of think this through logically, right? What do you do if you're at a birthday party with a king who has everything there is to be had? What do you give him? What do you make him a casserole? What do you, what do you give him gold? He's got all the gold he needs. Ah, Herodias knows. I know what he doesn't have. I'll have my daughter dance seductively before him. And I know that I can seduce him through her seduction and finally get what I want. Now, the text is incredibly brunt and in your face. Do not miss it for what it really is. She goes and tells her daughter, it's time. And the Bible says that we just read that the daughter, this young girl, dances seductively and as disgusting as the sound she pleases. All right, this isn't like having a pleasing conversation either. She sexually pleases Herod. And not just Herod, but who else? His guests. This is depravity on full display. This is what it is, an orgy. Led by a woman who had such, like, just hatred towards John the Baptist because John the Baptist did what was right. Civically engaged with the king and called him out on his mess. Now, I wonder if John the Baptist had known this would have happened, would he have still called him out on his mess? The answer to that is a yes. In Mark's gospel, excuse me, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, I think verse 14, um, you know, John the Baptist got this boldness that some of us don't have, like some religious leaders come out with the crowd to hear him speak. And he, and he looks at every single one of them and he says, you are brood of vipers. All right, now we hear that phrase. Like, what does that even mean? Like he's just saying like, you are the family of poisonous snakes. You do nothing but spiritually kill people. All right, so yes, John the Baptist has this boldness about him that he doesn't care what happens to his life. He understands my life is not my own. I'm just the finger pointing, the voice speaking, the light shining. I'm just that guy. And I'm going to do it with boldness. So, so Herod then, he, he finds himself in, in a mess. And, and I, just, I just have to say like, it, and it shouldn't even be, be said, but I think I should say it. If you find yourself in one of these situations, 
Run. Like, get out. Now, I know like maybe some of your com- company parties, they may, they may not go this crazy. But, but hear me. I know there are parties at universities, at high schools. Listen, when the temptation, if you have temptation, you, you better run. You gotta, uh, you gotta, like, I'm thinking here as I'm, as I was studying this, I'm thinking, like, wasn't there, like, any sensible person in the room with any set of morals who was just scratching their head thinking, you know what, this, this is not it. This, this right here, this is all wrong, y'all. Like, cover yourself up, boo-boo, we shouldn't be doing this. You got to think, where were the sensible people with any set of morals? But these were the type of wicked people that King Herod hung around who were in there not just watching, but participating in the wickedness and the depravity of sin. Now, when we listen to a story like this, it's, it's hard to think like, well, well, what do I do? Well, step one. Stay away from orgies. <laughs> Step number two, you know, um, don't, don't go to bad parties, you know. Like, but I think there's something deeper that we can do. And it is understanding the high cost of civic engagement. I want to give you a biblical case for why the church must continue to be like John the Baptist, be a finger pointing to Christ, a voice in the wilderness, and a light shining, calling out sin for what it is. I want to take you through some scriptures that would back my case study on this in Exodus chapter 5 you don't it's not going to be on the screen you can note it later Exodus chapter 5 verse 1 it says this afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh thus says the Lord the God of Israel let my people go and they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness but Pharaoh said who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, okay, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. What is Moses and Aaron doing? They are going before the king, this wicked tyrant, and they are doing the same thing John the Baptist is doing. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 6, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? Previous to this, Nehemiah just asked the king if he could go and survey the wall of his people. And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Nehemiah then goes to the governors of each province and civically engages them and tells them what the Lord has called him to do. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And look what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told the king. O king, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be true, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here's the high cost of civic engagement. They got thrown into the furnace. Their story didn't end up like John the Baptist. Because when the guards went to go get them, their ashes, they were still alive. Just three chapters after this, in chapter 6 of Daniel, there's a guy named Daniel. Darius the king, same story issues an edict, and he says that I'm going to sign this, and everyone in the kingdom must bow and worship the idols and worship me. (laughs) Daniel's like, hmm, okay. So Daniel, you know what he did? He went up to his room facing everyone to see, opens up his window and three times a day he falls to his his knees and he worships and he prays to Yahweh. And boy, oh boy, those religious fanatics, they nutted up on Daniel. Darius, we got him. He's worshiping Yahweh again. And Daniel's like, I'm not going to worship your gods I'm worshiping the true God. And so Darius takes him into the lion's den. And again, fortunately, Daniel's story does not end up like John the Baptist. Daniel is rescued by the Lord. What are all of these people doing in this story? This is civic engagement. This is, there are concerns our kings and our leaders and our governing authorities are bowing to the knee of whatever. They're worshiping false idols. They're bowing to whatever you can toss in there right now, culturally speaking. Over the past two years, if I may, press on us just a little bit if that's okay. Over the past two years, I have witnessed more pastors in churches bowing their knee to government and not to Yahweh because they've been convinced and deceived by the serpent that the government is their source of life. Now, I know what some of us are thinking. Now, wait a minute there, preacher. 
don't you dare go political on me. I'm, I'm about to. Philippians 2.10, if you remember, we went through the, the book of Philippians last year. Because I've been oh so greeted with, you should just stick with the gospel preacher. And I said, okay, I will. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 10, so that, every, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God forever. Here, here's Paul in prison, okay? You just follow me just for a second and I'll be done. Saying Jesus is Lord or Kyrios or Yahweh and how that would be translated would be an incredibly threatening message. Could you imagine writing this letter in a prison cell in Rome and a guard proofreads this and he's like, oh, bro, not today. You really want to do this today, Paul? Because they understood the weight and, the, and how, how in, like, this, this message, Caesar could not stand the fact that Paul, hear me now, please, was getting political. In fact, we get our word gospel from a political term, which means the euangelion. Euangelion is this word that means the message. And so anytime they would use the word gospel or euangelion, it literally translates as a person, a messenger, is out roaming through the kingdom saying the kingdom is intact. Caesar is Lord. And so my boys in the early church, they took this message, euangelion, and said, you know what, we're going to take this message and slap it in the face of Caesar. Because there is only one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Jesus Christ the Lord. And Caesar, you hear me carefully. You will bow before him as your judge or you better repent now because then you will bow before him as your savior. Now, can you imagine... In Philippi, which was a colony of Rome, had retired military people. It's kind of like this town flourishing. Could you imagine being in the church meeting when they read that letter? No. no wait. Yeah, we agree with this but I'm not willing to risk everything for the sake of this message that our president, that any king, that any ruler, that any dictator, that any authoritarian tyrant is not my leader because my allegiance is to King Jesus. Now imagine with me if you can Let's, let's consider John the Baptist here. Understood how important it was for him to look into the face of Herod and tell him, you've got to repent, man. 
this is wrong what you're doing to your brother. This, this marriage, this is, it's just not right before the eyes of God. What if God is awakening his church today? Where are the John the Baptist who will be the voice in the wilderness in, in the civic realm in the realm of politics, in the realms of the halls of Washington, in our local governing authority, finger-pointing to Jesus, voice-crying out of the wilderness, boldly proclaiming and shining the light of Christ. I just, I, I'm wondering, I'm not advocating for a theocracy here. I'm advocating that us as the church, us as Christians, get off of our apathy and stand in the faces of our governing authorities. There is only one way to this. And it's grounded in the word of God. Listen, if we do not do this, things will happen. You see in Canada where a pastor was locked up because he did what John the Baptist did, defied the edicts of the authoritarian that they have in power in Canada. I know a pastor in Montana who was shut out of his business because of his stance on biblical issues. Oh, this is just 20, 30 years down the road. No, it's now. And if the church doesn't wake up and get off our apathy and go declare the news of Jesus Christ, I'm not, listen, I'm not saying... I'm not advocating any political party. I'm advocating the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's where our allegiance is. Paul knew this. That's why he's writing to these folks down in Philippi. They, they're, they're wondering, am I, am I a citizen of Rome? Am I a citizen of, of Philippi? How does this all relate to each other? No, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first. And there is one way to this. And may we as a church be the voice in the wilderness, pointing our finger to Jesus Christ, shining a light and standing on the truth of God's holy word. This must be our way of life. That we are advocating for the kingdom that has no end. And that either you will bow before him as judge or you will bow before him as your savior. And that's our cry. Point to Jesus and use your voice and shine your light.